I'm like you. I'm optimistic and encouraged, and I'm glad that there is this budding industry around sustainability and ESG because it, it makes everybody begin to focus on those things. Hey everyone, welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today is Don Racy. Don is a consultant who helps energy companies better abide by the standards of ESG investing. If you've heard ESG, it's probably because it is one of the hottest buzzwords in the world of finance, focusing on the environmental, social, and governance impact of publicly traded firms. In this interview, not only does Don go over some basic definitions, but also some of the frameworks by which any company, even an oil and gas one, can improve their ESG impact, making them more relevant to investors, and improving the long-term trajectory of a business. We also talk a little bit about the coal industry, the future of energy consumption in the U.S. and other economies, and a whole lot more. You're going to learn a lot. I sure did. Here is Don Racy. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. So Don, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. I'm excited. I, I, there's a lot to learn today. And I think the starting point is something that is a, a buzzword. If you're into finance, if you read Bloomberg or some of these other kind of investing oriented publications, uh, the, the term ESG is something you may be familiar with or have heard. Like many buzzwords, there's the hype, there's the kind of cloud of what it could potentially mean, and then there's mm-hmm. the kind of ground truth of what is actually going on and uh, what kind of impact it's having on the world of business. So yeah. uh, to start things off for folks, can you just give us a definition of ESG? Yeah, absolutely. So ESG is an acronym for Environmental, Social, and Governance. In the context of a company, it's really about your impact on the environment, your impact on social causes or social justice issues within your organization. And in, on this, in this context of governance, it's really what are the management systems, policies, and procedures that your company uses to um, basically govern how they act with their customers, with their employees, and with their overall stakeholders. And the argument is, if this is a you know investing thesis or a parameter by which an institution might actually decide whether or not to allocate money somewhere, mm-hmm. the idea is number one, you know, it gives you cover as the investor of saying like we're not, you know, we're investing behind a, a thesis of sustainability, sure. but also there's a kind of long term, you know, anti fragility that comes with following some of these principles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think one of the interesting things that's, that's happening right now is the more holistic look at ESG. If you were to talk about this, say, four or five years ago, it was solely focused on the environmental impact, and, and probably rightfully so. It, it was understanding what is your overall carbon footprint, what is your contribution to uh, CO2, greenhouse gas emissions, and the like. But what I am really encouraged about right now is the, the more broader conversation that's happening 
when you when you pull in the social aspects of it and as well as the governance because when you think about it you don't get the environmental or the social without strong governance and leadership so um, as you say from a an envir- from a financial perspective i always say follow the money and so it is the financial sector that is driving this. So if you look at companies like BlackRock, you've got guys like Larry Fink who are extremely vocal about investing in sustainable in sustainability and companies with strong ESG principles. Now, uh, I think one of the challenges that comes is you can't turn the, the entire economy on a dime. And so there is going to be a point where... I think the the broader public has to realize that there's not a good or a service that you interact with every single day that doesn't in some way, shape, or form utilize fossil fuels as part of its supply chain. From the computer to the headphones we're using to the clothes on our back, we needed fossil we still need fossil fuels to deliver those types of goods you don't get plastics without fossil fuels you that's that's one of the ones that if you weren't paying attention in chemistry class most people miss and if you look around your lived environment there is a load of plastic all exactly. over the place yeah plastic is a is a huge uh, piece of this um and, and um and and so uh, what what i think is is really um encouraging, like I said, is the more broader conversations around, you know, ethnicity, inclusion, and diversity, Um, procurement policies, making sure your supply chain isn't dependent on materials and resources from bad actor company, countries, so to speak. Um, And there's a lot of, I guess I would call it inherent hypocrisy in some of those things. You know, you can you can be very proud about driving your Prius, but how did you get that battery, that yeah. lithium lithium battery, and understanding that it takes a tremendous amount of surface mining to make that happen? They off some of those materials often come from countries that rely on forced labor, and that is certainly not the intent of the consumer. The consumer wants to know and feel that the purchases they're making, the decisions they're making on the goods and services they use are being done in a very ethical way and in a, in very much an environmentally friendly way. And so can you talk about, with more precision, the actual standards, if there are any, that these three, either the E, the S, the G, sure. are actually evaluated through? Like I could see something perhaps on the social front where if you know we have... I don't know if a quota is the right word, but you know, some proportion of our suppliers, our vendors are from uh, diverse companies, then that's a way to kind of abide by one of the, those standards. But how else is this actually kind of calculated? Because if there isn't data backing it up, and data can still lie, but if there isn't data yeah. backing up, then it, it, it just turns into No, th- actually there's a whole budding industry around uh, different um, reporting frameworks and KPI uh, methods of uh, methods of evaluating KPIs and metrics around the ESG issues. But for instance, the Global Reporting Initiative, GRI, uh, is one of the more broadly used reporting frameworks. And so what that is, is a scorecard of specific 
key performance indicators related to the environmental aspect, the social aspect, and the uh, governance aspect. And what you end up doing is basically looking at your company from the lens of those reporting disclosures and working backwards from it. So if you know that these reporting disclosures are going to ask you about your procurement policies, they're going to ask you about your hiring policies, you have to then, uh, you know, kind of form the strategy and plan within your own organization as, okay, how am I going to comply with these reporting frameworks first and foremost, and then how do I measure my performance against those? And so there's a number of reporting frameworks. I mentioned GRI. ISO, International Standards Organization, has their own ESG reporting framework. Like, if you're familiar with ISO 9000 quality management systems and I'm not. those types of things. Okay. But, um, and there are a number of them. Uh, An- another dynamic, just, just to, yeah. as I think about like different forms of regulating, there's regulating in the kind of state-centric sense, right. where we've created this agency, this authority at the government level, and we are making a, down, you know, a d- downwards dictated yeah, sure. to the market. And then there's another form in the classic example of this that I would know from a a finance perspective is something like FINRA, Mm -hmm. which is a regulatory body looking at the goings on within the financial industry, but it is comprised of, supported by, funded by the largest financial institutions in the market as a way of basically saying to those state level regulators, hey, we're, we're policing ourselves. Don't you know, don't encroach too much in order to control that. So I imagine there's a similar dynamic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we work with a lot of energy companies, utilities. There are a number of layers of different compliance reporting requirements that you have to go through federal state in the world of utilities. You have state utility, you have the utility commissions, NERC, FERC, uh, a lot of different you know, government agencies that you have to report those uh, compliance uh, regulations up to. But right now, at least in the United States, much of the ESG uh, reporting frameworks, they're completely voluntary right now. Okay. Now, however, that I, I strongly feel that's going to change very soon. You're starting to see, especially companies in the European Union, already require mandated compliance or mandated reporting requirements in regard to ESG. So I think it's just a matter of time that that happens. So on the environmental front, you know, I've matured past the point of assuming that the obvious playbook or solution is is that which is actually being implemented because this mm-hmm. is a wacky world that we live in. But to me, one of the barometers by which I, as a, as a in, ignorant individual, would evaluate environmental impact is always on a relative basis. So, you know, the, the kind of binary of this energy source good, that energy source bad is a very kind of black and white simplistic view right. of things and, and really seeing things in the spectrum of a sliding scale of if we, if we want to reduce the quantity of carbon that is being emitted into the atmosphere, then moving from bad to less bad, or if that's not the frame you would say, you know, high output to relatively low output mm-hmm. is, is on a relative basis good versus unilaterally looking at everything through the lens of zero emissions, which is really, right. if we kind of look at it, Nuclear, maybe wind, maybe solar, but like you said, the battery, yeah. um, you know, yeah. creation and extraction. Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting um, discussion, really, because 
when, when you think about it, it's, you know, the, our, our entire economy uh, from the turn of the century uh, was built upon coal. It's what we knew. It's what we had. Uh, it was cheap and it was abundant. Without coal, we don't get the dramatic rise in um, creature comforts that we have today or technology for that matter. We don't have modern medicine without it. We don't have skyscrapers without it. We don't have uh, the infrastructure and the transportation systems that we have without it. I think the problem comes when you start vilifying entire industries because they had their time and place. It's what we knew. How I think, and originally at the time, this could probably be argued, we didn't know how bad it was for us so to speak, from, a, from an environmental impact and yeah. from a, a health impact. Um, we've since grown from that, right? And so now uh, we've gone from kind of the, the bulk of our energy production being oil and coal to now, you know, transitioning more to natural gas and renewables. And, and, and natural gas from, once again, not an expert, understanding substantially less environmentally impactful yeah. than something like coal. That's correct. And um, so it's, it's like I said earlier, it's hard to flip the switch and go from, you know, say a, a, fo- a completely fossil fuel-based fuel source to a renewable-based fuel source. Um, right now, we don't have the technology to do that. We still need oil and we still need um, fossil fuels to get us the materials that we need for our everyday lives. Um, what I think uh, really the broader discussion is how do you transition and how you do it in a very smart way. For instance, if we want to uh, bring on massive amounts of electric vehicles, we have to change our entire infrastructure to do that. Yeah. You know, we, uh, you know, we, we have uh, a number of large service stations throughout, you know, the area um multiple bays that you can fuel up your cars and things like that. Now think about how do you change all of that to now account for a massive amount of electric vehicles? You know, you still need people. You're still going to have to your daily commute. Yeah, you can you can plug your car in at night, but if you have to travel, if you're a salesman, you have to travel for a living. What does that mean for you? If you're uh, uh, an over the over the road driver who hauls freight, you know, and you, and you go to an electric truck now, what does that mean for you? And so, and also to do it, we have to start, we have to generate a lot more baseload electricity than we currently have. Yeah, the grid, but to say said another way, the grid, if, if you know, we were to fully implement electric vehicles across the mm-hmm. entire economy, it simply couldn't handle that. Not right now, no. Uh, and, and the, the, and, and in switching to just renewables certainly won't get you there because they're both they're intermittent fuel sources right now. We live in western Pennsylvania. We're not going to be building a lot of solar here. Yeah. Every day is you know we 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 have more cloudy days in Seattle. Yeah. For instance. Um, Particularly like January, February too, yeah, where you yeah, exactly. really need. Exactly. And the geography uh, of so many uh, places around the country may not be conducive to wind and solar. So, uh, but, and, and they don't have, the technology doesn't exist to generate massive amounts of baseload power like you have with a nuclear power plant, with a coal-fired power plant, and a natural gas power plant. 
Now, uh, we've been able to decommission and take offline tons of coal-fired power plants, but we're switching over to more natural gas because that's the one fuel source where we can generate the larger amounts of baseload power. In a steady state. In a steady state, exactly. And it does not, is not so dependent on the weather. Um, It's actually more resilient uh, than wind and solar. I mean, if you saw what happened in Texas last winter. Yeah. Great example. Gotcha. So how is that narrative um, introduced or what do the conversations look like in, I guess it's really, if it's, it's still boardrooms as opposed to, you know, state legislatures in terms of having those conversations. I, I guess utility companies, that would be more Yeah, um, you know, the, well, there are uh, any number of uh, advocacy groups out there um, on one side of the aisle or the other, you know. And, and right now, uh, the renewables advocacy groups are winning the argument. Um, they, they have a louder voice right now, and um, they have the better marketing behind it, I should say. Um, because the, the challenge is we have politicized this as opposed to taking a look at it from a scientific perspective and going, how can we really move from this point to this point and what's our roadmap to get there, you know, and how can we pull in all of those industries that rely on this source and how do we transition all of those to this source? It, 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 it takes a really broad conversation to do that. Um, I don't know the answer right now by any stretch. I mean, well, if you were able to figure that out, that'd be really big for oh, this yeah. episode. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We've got the answer, folks. We exactly. But, but I do think the, the, basically the answer is all of the above. We need solar. We need wind. We need natural gas. We need nuclear. Um, and for a time, we're going to need coal and oil, you know. If you look at what China is doing right now, China and Southeast Asia, they are building coal-fired power plants at a a tremendous pace. I think somewhere close to 25 new coal-fired power plants went online in China just last year. Wow. While we're closing them. So uh, this is, I guess, more of a supply chain question, Mm. but in other parts of the world where coal can be mined, because it's not a given that you can just mine coal anywhere, does that basically mean that coal that might have otherwise been shipped to be burnt somewhere in the United States is just kind of being rerouted to China, or is it is no. that not how far coal? No, 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 no. It's all local. You know, uh, the 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 interesting thing about coal here in the United States is we we don't import. Okay. We have the supply here. Same thing with natural gas. We're com- we can be completely independent. Because I'm, I'm used to hearing the story about oil, and before yeah. um, you know certain reserves of, of energy were found under the ground in the United States, yeah. it was like, well, we have to go to the Middle East because there's oil there. Right. We that's you know it's so strategically important. Russia has oil within their borders, right. and that's a you know a geopolitical yeah. um, lever, so to speak. Yeah. I just I'm not, not as sophisticated as it pertains to coal. No, it it, it is uh, it is, uh, and we have you know the obviously the trade agreements between countries, and we barter that way. You know, uh, we'll, uh, 
you buy our wheat, we'll buy your coal. You buy our coal, we'll buy your oats, whatever the case may be, right. you know. But um, the, the interesting thing, when, when I mentioned China specifically, it's the fact that you have a country that's, that's growing so rapidly. They need massive amounts of infrastructure being built. Their population is increasing dramatically. Um, so how do you, how do you build that infrastructure? Well, you need a fuel source has to be abundant and it has to be cheap and we have to, uh, be able to get it locally. Yeah. You know, that's the answer. And so, so China is able to also mine all of that locally as well. Yeah. And I, well, yeah. And there are other areas around there they can import it from as well. And then depending on the, the, coal type i mean i i think that there are even times when china's uh importing coal from us depending on the particular type that it is yeah i'm not a coal expert by any stretch yeah. but uh i i think that's um uh, that's certainly a, a consideration of theirs until they uh can find uh again a more abundant fuel source that's inexpensive that can help them again move the needle because they've got tremendous environmental issues with pollution and, um, you know, just the health of their own citizens to deal with. Gotcha. The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co. So we, we've gotten this far, and I haven't really gotten to dig much into the Don Racy story. We've talked oh, about, yeah, we've, yeah, yeah. We've dug into the ESG <laughs> story here. But, you know, contextually for people, I'm always fascinated. So I have a very, very good friend, and he is uh, something of a naturalist. You and I could go for a walk in the woods with him, and he could identify every single tree, every single mushroom, oh, yeah. a bunch of the other kind of native fauna. Yeah. And articulate to you how it interacts with one another. And when I speak to you, I, I experience something similar where you you have enough of an understanding of these kind of different energy systems and regulations and investment theses. You kind of weave this together and that forms a really compelling corpus of knowledge that most people don't necessarily have. And for him, one of the things he loves is, is I get paid to learn. I keep learning about this stuff. I teach other people yeah. and it's this beautiful cycle. And my perception is that you are in a, a, a similar type of role, if not explicitly the same domain. It's interesting. I would say I get paid to learn as well, yeah. uh, which is great. Um, you know, I started my career in consulting. Uh, like a lot of uh, new grads, uh, they were attracted. I was attracted to consulting because I thought, you know, this is giving, um, I don't go to work for just one company and I'm there for 20 years. What consult, what I always knew consulting would allow me to do is to go into different companies and understand what they do and help them out, you know. And, um, and so uh, throughout the years, I've worked with a number of really great firms and gotten tremendous experience. You know, my, my first consulting uh, project was actually at a General Motors assembly plant. And so that's where I learned kind of uh, lean manufacturing and just-in-time manufacturing. And it was fascinating, just absolutely fascinating. So uh, in a sense, I got paid to learn, <laughs> which, was, which was great. As my career kind of progressed, I uh, 
kind of went more and more into the uh, energy sector. And it wasn't by uh, design. It was by chance, you know, like a lot of people's careers happen. Um, and I started working in um, power plants and in refineries and large industrial complexes. And I really got a great education in enterprise asset management or asset lifecycle management from commissioning a, an asset to managing that asset, optimizing it, and finally decommissioning it. And when I, when I say asset, not necessarily financial asset, but a large asset like a power plant or a substation or um, uh, a chemical manufacturing facility. And so um, what it gave me a great insight into um, how, how those organizations work, the supply chain from raw material to finished goods. And so um, a few years ago, uh, when the conversation around sustainability and ESG started to pick up, I, I got involved with a project. It was actually with a pharmaceutical company, and they were talking about their supply chain and what what does this mean when we have to do material traceability? How do we uh, make sure that the, our our primary inputs and ingredients for our uh, for our goods are being procured and produced from credible sources that we can cite and things like that. And so that's how it started for me. And then when the idea of ESG reporting frameworks came around, well, I had a lot of experience with that, you know, because we we had done a lot of work with, for instance, regulated utilities. They have compliance mandates. They have reporting requirements that you have to show that you've uh, maintained these assets to a certain standard over a certain time period. And so that let me kind of really pull all of my knowledge together. Now, what... Uh, what it's allowed me to do uh, from growing my own business is take what I've learned over that past 20 years and really sit down across the table from a from an operator. It, it, say you're a plant manager uh, at a chemical manufacturing. I understand how your process works. Therefore, I can help articulate what these frameworks mean for you. And I don't mean to sound like a commercial, but it's more of a natural conversation because I understand what they do. Yeah. You know, and it allows me to kind of articulate. So if you want to get here, this is what you have to do. Yeah. There's a lot of companies out there right now that are making very bold statements. That they'll say, we want to be net zero by 2030 or 2025 and net zero being basically meaning the amount of uh, greenhouse gases you take away is no more than you emit it, it, it at, at the kind of the the easiest way to explain it says i i don't produce more than i can take away got it um and so you can say i can get there but the question is how do you do it i can make a bold i can make a bold statement like that but now how do you operationalize it the, i don't know if you've ever seen the uh hbo show uh silicon valley but there's this meme of like the executive who, and it's it's basically a company's a stand-in for Google. Okay. But it's like the executive is out like doing the the presentation. He's yeah. like, and then we're gonna be able to deliver this product, and then all the engineers are like, like watching the presentation, like, how the hell are we? we no, do? We, we can't do that. <laughs> That's exactly right. I yeah. mean, 
it's uh, the last thing you want to have is some flashy marketer go, we can do this, blah, blah, blah. And, and the engineer's going, no, we can't. Yeah. You know, and uh, I think there's a little bit of that happening right now, frankly. But uh, I, I think one of the one of the things what kind of really gets me up in the morning is being able to kind of sit down across the table from somebody and help them figure that out. Yeah. Which is great. Because it's it's, it's also really interesting. So I've seen all this, those proclamations. As well. I've seen all sorts of proclamations mm-hmm. and press releases and whatnot. The proclamation, and I'm just going to use an example that I actually, I really, really admire, um, is a company called Stripe. And what they do is payments on the internet. Okay. So they're not only able to work you know, all of their clients are basically websites or other digital forms of payment mm-hmm. processing, but this is a lot of bits moving around yeah. our existing network infrastructure and a bunch of engineers who are, you know, with the right kind of VPM and secure single sign-on able to work from anywhere. So not only are they not commuting, they don't necessarily yeah. have to have the same office responsibilities and they're uh, proclamation is it, whatever the one is beyond carbon neutral, where they're like okay. taking more yeah. out than they're putting in, which you know, if you consider what they're probably putting in, it's it's so infinitesimal right. compared to um, an international fruit uh, right. producer like Dole or yeah. some of these, you know, Exxon or some sure. of these other types of companies sure. that are primarily rooted in the physical world as opposed to mm-hmm. the digital world. Yeah. So it's it's fascinating to me to to hear that perspective of, you know. Great when our you know digital centric companies, you know, Microsoft is doing yeah. you know servers and software implementations. What about the the real physical yeah. world companies that are still crucial to living our daily lives? Right, that's absolutely right. I mean, we need you know, you know the the consumer is not going to stop buying Ziploc bags. They're not going to stop buying Rubbermaid bowls. You know, they're not going to stop uh, buying plane tickets. Uh, they're not going to stop buying the clothing like we have right now. So all of those, all of those types of industries need different types of fuel sources. Are, are there particular proclamations and I'm not asking you to like, you know, uh, completely eviscerate anyone, but, but are, are there ones that seem particularly tenuous to actualize? Um, well, I, I do think when, when I hear, and it's mostly kind of nonprofit agencies and things like that saying, I want, we need to get rid of fossil fuels. You know, they're all bad. Well, like I said, you don't get modern medicine without them right now. Can you articulate that a little Because you well, said for that before. Instance, yeah, for instance, okay, um, a syringe. What are the components of a syringe? A metallic needle and a plastic um, container exactly. for the liquid. Exactly. So you don't get any of that <laughs> without steel, and you don't get it without plastics. How do you get steel? Well, guess what? You need coal. And with plastics, you need uh, petroleum-based products and or natural gas or, or derivatives of natural gas to create plastics um, in their various forms. And so, you know, it's, it's one thing to say that, but it's another to realize what would life be like without it right now. So there has to be a smart way to think about it over the long haul, because like I said, you can't turn on a dime and you don't want to vilify entire industries and people's way of life, so to speak. Um, you know, the last thing I would do is, uh, uh, 
you know, insult a coal miner for what they do, right? Um, There are generations and generations, especially in this area of southwest of, you know, western Pennsylvania, that uh, we we grew this entire economy on steel and coal, you know, and in our whole region. And so, you know, stop vilifying it. And, and instead, think about how do we begin transitioning from that in a very thoughtful manner. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not an easy answer by any stretch, but I think that I, I, to get out of the finger pointing, we have to start there. Yeah. I, um, I, I, I default to optimism across yeah. the board, much to the annoyance of my wife because she's <laughs> <laughs> like, you can't be optimistic about every single yeah. thing. But, um, you know, I always point to the fact that I, I can remember living through used to be the, ke- like the ketchup bottles were just the vertical, yeah. like I set up with the cap on the bottom and then all of a sudden they well, sure. started putting the cap on the bottom and that made it so much easier to take out. And there's all those other small instances of wins that are out there to mm. be had. Um, that, you know, generally makes me optimistic yeah. about these types of energy, energy transitions. Another one, I just, um, redid a bathroom and I learned that, you know, toilets used to be, I think it's like six gallons per flush. Yeah. It's like one point oh, yeah. two whatever. And, you know, that's, it's not that we've removed water from the toilet process. Right. It's that we've drastically reduced the need, which net has us burning less water, well, not burning water. And, and I'm, I'm much younger than, I'm much older than <laughs> you rather. Uh, I remember a world without the internet. A world without cell phones. Um, I also remember when it was, uh, you know, in, up in Cleveland, the river caught on fire because it was so polluted. Yeah. Um, I remember my grandmother wiping down windows because of soot. You know, we don't have that now. I mean, things get dusty, but there's not a black layer of soot on your car every day. You know, and the our waterways are cleaner. Our um, our building materials are much more environmentally friendly now. Um, so things are getting better, uh, and they've, they've gotten better exponentially over time in regard to our environmental impact. We just have a lot more people now. Yeah. You know, which is another of those issues. I'm not saying that's bad. I mean, it's it is what it is. It's the reality of the situation. Yeah, it's the reality of the situation, and. Um, uh, but you know, it, I'm, I'm, I'm like you, I'm optimistic and encouraged and I'm glad that there is this budding industry around sustainability and ESG because it, it makes everybody begin to focus on those things. Yeah. And, and we tend to really focus on the environmental side, especially in the press more than anything. But the things that, that are happening now from a social justice perspective, the things that uh, were tolerated 10, 15 years ago don't get tolerated today, which is a good thing. Yeah. You know. Um, Let's talk about the governance side. Though, yeah. Because that's, you know, you want to talk about the spectrum of, of sexy yeah, to abs- unsexy. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the, the, the social side, highly legible, particularly uh, given the events of last year. And, um, you know, the energy side, it, it feels tangible because, hey, I fill up my car with gas, I pay right. my, you know, electricity bill, yada, yada. The governance side is probably the most opaque 
part mm-hmm. to the average person out there. Um, one of the the you know uh, um, examples that I've seen of or I've I've kind of read about as pertains to governance is something to the effect of um, uh, a CEO or an executive kind of stacking the board with, for lack of a better word, sycophants right. who are going to kind of acquiesce to whatever that chief executive says and proper governance is really about accountability to somebody that is not more or less in your pocket. So can you just maybe articulate a little bit more about what's going on on the governance side of ESG because that is one of the three legs of the tripod. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, It's interesting because we went through decades of uh, kind of a shift in the way especially CEOs were compensated. So you you went uh, from uh, a period where the CEOs made, you know, let's say a factor of a hundred times the average employee to now thousands of times more than the, the average employee. They are compensated strictly on the increase in shareholder value, not in creating a sustainable business. And now you're managing quarter to quarter as opposed to thinking about the long term. Okay, what do I want this company to look like five years from now, 10 years from now? Um, Because in a sense, you've seen the C-suite just become this revolving door. Every two years, the the, uh, large organizations have a new CEO and it all changes. And I mean, you, you get a guy with stock options and... Uh, he was there two years. How could he make a hundred million dollars? You know, and and so Hannah I, and I talk about it all the time with the streaming wars and yeah. the fact that you have Reed Hastings who has sit, sat at the helm with Ted Sarandos of Netflix for I think like twenty years now. And in that intervening twenty years, I, there's a guy who updates it every time there's a change. But yeah. who's the head of direct, uh, Disney's direct yeah. to consumer? Who's the head of NBC's? Who's the head? Of, and you oh, go on that, and on. That, it's, that it's, would it's, be fascinating. It's completely yeah. different. No wonder Netflix is the biggest and the baddest. Right. Exactly. And, and, and I think that, like you said, boards were stacked and now there's a lot more scrutiny being placed on that. And I think it's, uh, to some degree, there have been some litigation that's happened where, um, I can't cite specific cases, but I, you know, when a, when a board member now because of their sign off, uh, basically, um, endorses a certain action of a company now they become uh part of uh you you know that litigation or they can liable for their actions Uh, you know that changes the conversation a lot you know you're not just as you know uh uh, you have some skin in the game so to speak and i think that's a good thing um between, uh, you know, how the boards are structured, we're seeing a lot more emphasis being placed on diversity of, of boards. It's not just the old uh, tenured white guy, you know, who sits on four boards, yeah. you know, and, and just goes from his, his jet to one board meeting to another board meeting to another board meeting. Um, we're starting to take a look at how those boards are comprised. What are the committees that those boards are, are made up of what are they actually overseeing and contributing to the overall leadership and management of that company that they they sit on so um, but I think uh, for, from the from the governance perspective the thing I'm most encouraged about is the 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 emphasis being placed on 
good policies and procedures that are being uh, and and uh, that are being kind of pushed into the organization. Things like you know vacation pol vacation policies and um, parental leave policies and uh, all of those things that really have an impact on on the employees' day to day lives. Um, you know, even as a small company like we are, I had to uh, think. I had to start thinking about that. You know, what do I want my company to look like? What are the type of people that we want to attract, and what kind of compensation packages do I need to offer? And it's not just salary; it's also healthcare. It's also the policies that we have, parental leave, those types of things. And it's it's not just for that first employee or that second employee. It's like Okay, you know, when when we're 100, what does that look like? And uh, how do we create those policies for a very um, diverse and um, uh, for a diverse workforce, a socially diverse workforce, whether it's their own um, uh, or very diverse religious workforce? You know, there's so many aspects of that. And so I think um, people are really starting to think, especially in, in this day and age when there's such a, a tremendous labor shortage in this country, um, when you see restaurants that can't open fully any longer. And yeah, I, I, uh, I, I speak to business owners all the time, and it's, if there's one constant right now is we can't find enough, we can't find people. Yeah. And so how do you then make yourselves attractive? So, um, and yeah, you know, uh, you can make arguments about, well, it's going to cause inflation or this or that, but it's also going to make you a better employer. Yeah. Um, people are always the competitive advantage. I want to ask mm-hmm. one more question here because we're aiming, aiming towards our, uh, our, our full-time allotment. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to miss this part. So back to your business as a consultant interacting with these companies, looking at their plants, looking at their systems and, and the impact that ESG has on their bottom line or their kind of strategic future as a company. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we talk about, we've talked about in past videos, is the difference between cost-based pricing and value-based pricing. And so if I imagine something like the services that you would be rendering to a a full kind of manufacturing stack, or you probably have better language to describe the kind of arena in which you're operating that from what I'm saying, there is, you know, the cost at the, you know, what is my, what do these hours cost? What are the supplies cost? What is the, you know, the inputs cost Mm -hmm. from my standpoint, but the value that you could be delivering to a a relatively large enterprise is substantial. So can you just talk as an entrepreneur building a consulting practice to the challenge of finding a pricing model that works for your business, but also for the clients that you're serving? Yeah, the million dollar question, (laughs) literally. Uh, You know, it's, uh, for us, it is a negotiation with every single client. So we will have a kind of a, a pricing structure and a profit margin that we want to stay with, for instance, but, but there are a lot, but there are also services that we do that we know that we have the advantage of being different that, and, and this is no offense to this constituency, but 
there are a lot of consulting firms out there that when they begin engaging with a particular client, the client buys the sales guy. What he gets is a team of new grads. Yeah. Who, and I was one of those kids once. It's a, it's a common pipeline. It's a common yeah. pipeline, right? And and so what happens is that client ends up spending a quarter to a third of their budget just educating that team on what they do so they can kind of get on with it, Yeah. right? I think one of the things that we kind of pride ourselves on is that's not us because we've kind of been there, done that. We understand your business. You're not going to have to spend that type of thing. And what we can also do is provide a level of expertise that you don't even have, you know, because, you know, a lot of the companies that we work with, almost all of them have brilliant engineers. You know, they wouldn't be there if they weren't. Um, but what they, what they don't have are the people who can just focus on a specific issue. And, and that's tough because in most of these companies, they're already running lean. They don't have an operational excellence group that's just out there waiting for something to do. Yeah. You know, they would have to pull people out of their regular job to help them out. Well, we, we can augment that, you know. And so uh, from a pricing perspective, we, we can, to, uh, I'll say this, we can command kind of a higher price yeah margin that because um, people also pay for speed right like it's, yeah. it's not just the cost yeah. of training and familiarizing and, that staff and it's for the most part most of the companies we've worked with have engaged with any number of consulting firms over the years so the the pricing models aren't that um it's they're not secret you know we kind of there we we kind of know where certain types of functions lie and then they also use contract labor for a lot of different things you know so um and there and there are price points for each of those you know and um but you know for what we do uh, a lot of the stuff we do it can often be fixed price you know they want a year-end sustainability report we know what it takes to produce one of those and so we can provide you know uh, some great insight into how you get there and so I think that's one of the things I, I really enjoy about that process is that we can put our engineers hats on. We can use our creative side from content design and layout from a graphic arts perspective and creative writing and all of that. Let's just use both sides of our brains. And uh, I, I think that's really where the value comes uh, for the client because they can kind of, okay, this person can deliver both of those things. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Don, this has been fantastic. I've oh, learned thank a you. ton and I, I can't believe that we're, you know, approaching an hour here of, of <laughs> Well, I appreciate you coming around. Before I let you go, I got a couple questions to wrap things up. Sure. Um, before asking those standard questions, anything else you're hoping to share today that I just didn't give you the chance to? No, I, I just think that uh, there's a lot of mixed messaging out there in regard to sustainability, ESG. It can be, it can often be confusing, overwhelming. And then there are people that are flat out believe it's all nonsense, frankly. And um, they'll say, you know, you know, well, there's no way you can tell me that we can control the temperature of the earth. Those big global questions yeah. like that. And my answer is maybe not. I don't know. But 
let's control what we can control. Yeah. You know, that doesn't mean that we should just throw our hands up and give up and just pollute indiscriminately and things like that. Let's be smart. I mean, let's sustainability, in my opinion, it's about leaving this world better and a better place for my kids and grand, my future grandkids. You know, that's the way I look at it. And if I can have one little piece of improving that for them, great. You know, I've done my job. Right on. Yeah. Well, uh, if folks want to learn more about you, check out all the stuff you're up to, what digital coordinates can we provide for people that might want to learn uh, more? Well, our website is Engage, E-I-C, all one word, dot com. And we are on, uh, let's see, all the social media platforms, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and the like. And, uh, you know, we'd love to hear from you for sure. Right on. We're yeah. going to link that in the show notes. People can yeah. find it at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every episode of the show or in the app where you're probably listening to this right now. Uh, but before I let you go, Don, I would like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Uh, an actionable personal challenge. So we've talked a lot about the environment and ESG and sustainability. My, my challenge would be to go out and plant a tree. It's one of the single greatest inventions in the world as a carbon capture tool. And um, I would just say uh, plant a tree. Uh, it's, it's a simple thing you can do. doesn't matter what kind it is because biodiversity is extremely important in this conversation. So I would just say plant a tree. Right on. I just uh, I, I mentioned the new property we planned. Three trees in the back uh, backyard in conjunction with the birth of my daughter. So awesome. she's going to get to kind of see yeah. those grow. It, in, yeah, uh, we in did unison. the same thing when our son was born. We, we, we actually received a great gift. It was a tree, and uh, it's, uh, it's growing but it's growing crooked in our backyard. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, it's not a reflection of you. No, that's just it's my no reflection of my son, as a but uh, <laughs> it, it kind of fits our family's personality for sure. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, uh, Don, this has been fantastic. Thank oh, you so much for taking the A pleasure. Thanks so much, Aaron. We just went deep with Don Racy. Over out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this interview with Don. If you found it valuable and you have not yet heard our conversation with Mark Marmo, the Deep Well Services CEO who absolutely transformed his business, then you got to go check that out. Episode 458 with one of the most prolific entrepreneurs in the region. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.